0: Slash MV Bible or YouTube at youtube.com slash MV Bible. Magic Valley Bible Church built on God's Word.
1: What a great God, amen. God of grace, God of mercy. You know, help us to have eyes to see and The beauty of this is that he's given us the revelation of his holy word, inspiration, truth, inspired, inerrant, and holy. Please take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We've been expositing this gospel for so many months now, and it continues to burn in your pastor's soul just the joy it is to exalt Christ, point to Christ to see His beauty and His majesty and and how He dealt with individuals as He came to declare a specific message of grace and mercy. Of course, that is through repentance and faith and to receive that. But I want to dive into a section of Scripture that is a narrative that gives us some understanding of the world today. The title of today's sermon is Combating Unbelief. I want to read our passage for us, starting in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. The Word of God reads this And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out and took custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless, the first, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Father, we, we go to your word and desiring for your spirit to teach us this morning, May we understand not only unbelief, but may we, more importantly, marvel in the Son. Jesus, we see how you dealt with the crowds, how you dealt with the skeptics, how you dealt with unbelief, and how you called them unto yourself, how you called a spade a spade, and you brought condemnation for those who don't receive you. And so, Father, teach us this morning that there might be some who have come here this morning trying to figure out this Christ and Christianity thing. We pray, Lord, that you use your word to pierce the heart, and may they receive grace and forgiveness and belief. Be with your preacher. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We find in our passage this morning a battle, a battle of the heart of faith versus unbelief. It is a battle between Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is God against those who simply refuse to believe. Now, must be said, not all unbelief is the same. You think about the spectrum of unbelief, the, the, the two polar, but this, this linear line, the spectrum of unbelief, there is on the one hand, an hardened unbeliever, somebody who mocks God, who hates God, somebody who desires to, to speak blasphemy, to throw rocks. This, of course, is very visible, something that we can see. We know those, those, those hardened unbelievers, they are easy to, to see and identify because they actually let you know where they stand with God. You don't even have to ask them. They let you know by their verbiage, by their actions, by what they say and what they do. And as we will see, they call Christ Satan. And in turn, flat out refuse to admit that Jesus is God. That is one extreme of unbelief. And on the other end of this the spectrum of unbelief there is an unbelief that looks friendly to, towards the things of Jesus Christ they come amongst our midst they they join our body they have a smile on their faith on their face they cordially show up to church they go through the motions they act like they really want to be here yet deep down they refuse to submit to Christ and his lordship they are hard to detect because they look like christians Yet deep down, they have not surrendered their heart to the truth and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And though friendly on the outside, they are unsaved on the inside. Now, both of these two extremes on this spectrum of unbelief end up in the same place. You understand that, right? They are judged for their unbelief. They stand in the righteous judgment of God Almighty. And in the end, they are eternally condemned. Why? Because they don't believe, they reject the Messiah. It really doesn't matter where an unbeliever lands on that spectrum. The same eternal destiny is the same. Now, this is what we see in our passage this morning. Jesus encounters three attacking groups of unbelief. Each are aggressive in their own way in their unbelief, trying to disprove and kick Jesus to the curb. And Jesus responds to their unbelief by declaring that their unbelief will have eternal consequences. I mean, he shuts the mouth of the skeptics and points to the, their condemned reality. And so, to some degree, this is kind of a a hardened passage, but a passage that we need to understand what Christ is doing here. So let's dive into this passage. And the first group that we see, this first unbelieving group, that we come across is this curious crowd. These are those who are drawn by the miracles of Christ. They show up when Christ is around. They are intrigued with Jesus' teachings. I say it this way, they are looky-loos. They're rubberneckers. They see a crowd, they want to know what's going on in this place, and they show up. And when it's convenient, they go to church. But there is no true conversion or commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, don't think that these categories of unbelief were just in the time of Jesus. We have those type of people in our presence, do we not? We see these categories even today as as the end result of a depraved heart is to, to be around Christ but never receive Christ. Now, before we pick up this group, I want to point out to some events. This is pretty interesting because Mark doesn't record for us some of the things that happened between verse 19 and verse 20. Matter of fact, in, in Matthew's gospel and Luke's Gospel, we, we have a, a handful of chapters of miracles and situations where, where, where Jesus is encountering that leads up to verse 20 in Mark chapter 3. There are a lot of events recorded for us in those gospels that Mark doesn't mention here. Let me remind you of them. The sections are found in Matthew 5 through 8 and Luke chapter 6 and 7. And there are some significant events. How about the Sermon on the Mount? You think about, Mark doesn't even deal with that. Matthew and Luke, absolutely. You and I both know that what Jesus taught there was was significant for understanding the kingdom and how we are to interact with one another. And then after this great sermon, Matthew and Luke both point to many miracles. Let me list them for you. You have the healing of the centurion servant. In other words, he heals, shows his hand. You got the rising or the raising of the widow's son. You have the explaining of John the Baptist as the greatest prophet of all time. You have the cursing of, of two cities for the refusal to believe and repent. And then you have the anointing of Jesus' feet by a sinful woman. All of that occurs after Jesus comes down the mountain and fits in between Mark 3, 19 and 20. I pointed to that in light of what we're going to see. I, I think it builds credence to, to why these crowds were coming. Jesus is, is going to, to places. He, he's displaying his deity. He's preaching the message of repentance. He's calling people to, to come unto himself. And so it makes sense that the crowd is going to gather. However, the crowd is very self-absorbed. They're more concerned about what they can get out of Jesus. Look at verse 20 with me again. It reads there, and he, speaking about Jesus, came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal of course he came home we know that this would be the the peter's home we've already seen that in mark chapter 1 and 2 the whole issue of uh, where christ established his his galilean ministry it was north part of the sea or the lake of galilee it was in that place where jesus healed peter's mother-in-law we know that city to be capernaum and so he came home and guess what the crowds followed and notice what Mark says, they gathered or they, they crowded, let's see, let me read it. The crowd gathered again. In other words, as we've already seen, he's he's already reminding us of, of chapter two of these crowds coming. So much so, if you remember in that passage, it was so packed in Peter's house that uh, four men couldn't get a loved one to in front of Christ. And so what do they do? They have to go to the up on top of the of the house and, and open up the roof and lower the paralytic in front of Christ. I mean, people after people were coming. It's the context, it's the reality. Wherever Christ went, so did the people. And so this was happening again. The people were pressing in on Jesus, they were interested in and maybe what he can offer them. And Mark wants us to understand this is huge. This is huge. This is a huge pressing crowd. And there are demands upon Jesus that it even says in verse 20 at the end that he wasn't even allowed to eat, right? To the extent that he could not even eat a meal. I mean, you think about that. Jesus is so fixed on doing what the Father has called him to do that him and his disciples and the people pressing in, there wasn't even time to eat a McDonald's hamburger, This implies that Jesus and his disciples, after being on the mountain and traveling back to Capernaum, they were hungry. It makes sense, right? I love this. Because you get little snapshots in, in Scripture that remind you of the humanity of Jesus. He had hunger pains just like you and I. It points to his humanity, his incarnation, the fact that he was flesh and bones that he too would miss a meal in light of the situation at hand. But here's the the point. They were overwhelmed. They were immersed with people. And they weren't even able to eat. And often we think that maybe this was a one-time situation for Christ. This wasn't matter of fact, Mark 6.31 points that it happened again, and I would assume even throughout his ministry this often happened. The demands on Christ were so much. Mark 6.31 reads, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. And Mark puts in a parenthesis, For there were many people come on and going, and they did not even have time to eat. The man's ministry, where we ignore the, the needs of our own souls sometimes. Physical yes. But this was what's happening with Christ and His ministry. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus is immersed in the work of his work of displaying his glory with miracle after miracle after miracle. He's loving and showing compassion on these people that were pressing in on him. Yet, I think what's very clear to understand in this short verse is that it's very clear that people are not there to hear the teaching, but are there to be consumers. They want something from Jesus. They are self-serving, wanting the power of Jesus but not the saving truth of Jesus. They are the type of people that would endure a sermon as long as they get their miracle. It was almost as if they expect Jesus to heal them. They expected him to some degree to miss a meal so that they can have their needs met. Sure, they are curious about all that Jesus is doing, but not curious enough in order to receive salvation grace and mercy. And how often are our churches filled with people who are just wanting something for themselves, maybe a, a pep talk throughout the week, something to, to, to maybe some type of fellowship with the, in the body that they go to, but yet not really receiving the grace and the mercy and the truth of Christ. It's safe to say they were unconverted, unredeemed, they are around Jesus and the church, but they are still unbelieving in their hearts to the gospel message that Jesus preached. This group of unbelief needed a heart transplant. They needed redemption. They needed salvation. And he was right in front of their eyes. Next, we see the second group of unbelief. And that is the critical family. This is kind of interesting to me. You look at verse 21. Look what it says there. It says, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying he has lost his senses. It's almost as, 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 as word got out. Jesus is in North Galilee. He's, he's in Capernaum. His family has heard of who he is and what he's doing. And they come running to grab him and kind of shape him according to their own thoughts and their own needs. Now, the question we need to ask the text, what does it mean his own people? I think this is important. This phrase in the Greek, it's an idiom. It means family, friends, or associates. But if you skip your eyes to verse 31, in the near context of our our verse... Verse thirty-one of Mark chapter three, we can rightly surmise that Jesus is meaning his own family looked there. It says, "Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him." And so, near context tells us that this is his family. By the way, this is the first reference that Jesus makes in Mark's gospel towards Jesus' family. They will describe more fully in Mark 6, 3, when it says that it's not this, the carpenter, is not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simeon, are not his sisters, plural, here with us? And they took offense at him. There we see Jesus' mother, Mary, of course, four brothers mentioned James Joseph is best to see as Joseph, Judas, and and Simeon, and at least two sisters. Why? Because of the pearl of that noun, at least two. Now, back in verse 21, look at what they say about Jesus. This is what's kind of remarkable. They don't bring him lunch. They don't bring him a meal. Matter of fact, they point a finger and start criticizing Verse 21 says, and when his own people heard of this, speaking about the crowds gathering in verse 20, they went out to take custody of him. That's a very interesting word in the Greek. It has the idea of literally seizing him, arresting him, grabbing him. It would be as that, like that disobedient child who, who disobeyed what time they were supposed to come home, and you go out and you go grab them, and you grab them by the shoulders and say, you will come home now. Right, Madison? (laughs) Not that that has ever happened. Praise the Lord. Take custody of him. It carries the idea of arrest. Take possession of. It has the indication of, of, of removing by force for somebody else's good. And the reason they want to take a hold of him, if you look at verse 21... Uh, they, they make the statement, he has lost his senses, he has lost his what? His mind. He's out of it. I mean, this is from his own family who have seen and, and been, been raised with him. Now, I think it's important to understand that this possibly is not Mary's statement. Why? Because we know in the gospel that Mary received messenger from the angel, right, that, about who this Christ child will be. You know, it could be her, but I don't think it is. I think it's the brothers and sisters who who come along and think that they're going to come and rescue their half-brother, right? But they think Jesus is out of his mind. And so the other family members, they, they think Jesus has lost it. They go to Capernaum, and they go and grab their brother. I think the best is is to look at this. This was an intrusion in the ministry of Jesus. It's almost like they think that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. And so they come, and in their own estimation, they believe that he was spending maybe too much time in ministry. We don't necessarily know the reasons. The conclusion was that they they saw that he he had lost his senses, but maybe he was burning the candle too much, Maybe they think that he needs to take a sabbatical a break. But beloved, in all reality, when we do that to Christ, when we think that it's best to kind of shelve Christ in such a way, it's another phase of unbelief, is it not? It's not trusting that in his lordship and his deity and the fact that he's doing and that he's utterly sovereignly in control, even though he missed a meal. They want to control Jesus. They want a Jesus that is determined by how they think he should be. And I think we see this group today. I'm going to call it this way. These are your liberals. These are the ones who don't believe in the supernatural nature of Christ. They strip the deity of Christ. They they don't like a Jesus that are presented in the scripture. So they make up their own Jesus. They make a Jesus that fits culture instead of context of the scriptures. For them, they can't handle the truth that Jesus has said that he is the only way to heaven. I mean, you think about where liberal thought has taken the universal church. Mainline denominations are falling. Even conservative evangelical churches are falling as they advocate things outside the pages of scriptures. You've heard it from this pulpit. You talk about social justice, red flag immediately should pop in your mind. The fact of taking a social justice approach, a social gospel approach instead of the biblical approach, that people need Christ. These individuals, they edit and modify Jesus' words, they rework Jesus in such a way that they fit their image. I mean, there's so much written out there to try to help you rethink the Jesus that you don't know in the scriptures that makes you sick. This is an assault on the inspiration of scripture, the purity of scriptures, and let's call it what it is, right? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. Why? Because listen, beloved, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is never to be changed. Jesus is God. Jesus is the unchanging Christ. You either take him or you leave him. You either receive him as he is or reject him as he is. It's remarkable. You can't do what the liberals are trying to do and make him out to be something other than what the scriptures have proclaimed him to be. That's why you got to know your Bibles, right? In this day and age, we live in such a shifting and changing world where culture says you must do this, you must do this. Listen, the scriptures are black and they're white. They are definitive they are inspired by God himself. And let me just say this. God doesn't change. His truth is eternal. Is why we need to embrace this understanding. And though we sometimes put on kids' gloves, listen, they are an attack against the mighty God. Amen? The critical family, the critical liberals who desire to change a Jesus That is not even in the pages of scriptures. Listen, if there's anybody that needs to change, it's you and me. Not the scriptures. Not Jesus. So two, we've seen two groups of unbelief, right? There's unbelief of curiosity. There's the unbelief of a critical spirit. And third, this is the the third group that Jesus, and he kind of spent some time with this group, but we'll kind of unfold this time willing. This third group is the condemning leaders. Now, this doesn't surprise us. We've already seen the interaction of the, the scribes, the Pharisees, pressing against Christ. These are the ones who are defiant to the truth. They do not like Christ. They mock Christ. They taunt Christ. And what's remarkable is they even call him the son of a devil. Look at verse 22. It says there, it says, The scribes who remember these would be the ones who who would take the Mosaic law, they would interpret it. They were much like lawyers. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, which is interesting to me, Jesus' family comes. The scribes come from Jerusalem. They're converging on what Jesus is doing here, right? It goes on to say, he, and they were saying this, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. This was their summation. This was their, their understanding. This is what they, they saw and what's interesting to me, the verb tense of, of them saying this is actually in the present tense. They were actively saying this was their conclusion. And what they said was that he was the son of Satan. Beelzebub, it's kind of an interesting name. It, it's, it can be derived from a, a, a Canaanite deity, which means Lord of the house or Lord of the temple. What's interesting to me is the Israelites would play with other nations, gods, they would change some letters, and in such case they would do here, instead of being Lord of the house, they would mock the Canaanites and their false worship and change some of these letters and say that their God is Lord of the flies or Lord of the dung. But you can see what's happening there. The scribes were taking what they used to mock the Canaanites and and impose it upon Jesus, And told Jesus that that you are, in essence, Lord of the dung, that you work in the dark places. And they go on to say that Jesus cast out demons by the ruler of demons. This means that Jesus is working hand in hand with Satan himself. Now, what's interesting to me is that they do affirm the fact that Jesus is casting out demons, do they not? They've seen this. They've seen the power of Christ to to remove a demon from a person's life. They're not really battling with that. But their identity, they're going to say that, that he aligns himself with Satan. And in so doing, their unbelief, they're so hardened with their interaction with Christ that they become mockers and haters of the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny that he is God. They deny that he is the Messiah. They deny that he is the God who brings redemption or salvation. They believe only in themselves as as holding the truth and not Christ. Thus, in turn, they mock him. They cast insults against him. They take his name in vain. They spit upon him. This is the group of condemning leaders that Jesus faced. Now, the question is, what is Jesus going to do with these groups of unbelief? There they are, verse by verse, 20, 21, 22. They're all lined up. They're all imposing upon Christ. And what Jesus does, if time allows me here, is just remarkable. And by the way, if we don't get through this, remember, Lord willing, there's, there's another week, okay? But look at verse 23. And he, speaking of Jesus, called to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Here again, this is the omniscience, all-knowingness of Christ. He knows what they're saying. He understands clearly what their intentions are. Each group, by the way. And he began speaking to them in parables, which you and I both know, that parables are, are explaining spiritual things with earthly means to convey a truth, we often see this not only in the Gospels, but also in the Proverbs, axioms of truth. And, he, and he's going to speak this way. And he pretty much just gives them three parables here. And what does he say? First parables, how can Satan cast out Satan, right? He's pointing to the absurd, of their, uh, the absurd nature of their position. There's no rational thinking here. Why would Satan cast out demons? Why would Satan cast out Satan? Of course, he wouldn't. Jesus then goes on to explain this in, with an rhetorical question. Look at verse 24. He says this He says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And then another parable, verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. I mean, it makes sense. Jesus is bringing r- truth. Rational truth. He's pointing out the Serb nature of their their mocking nature. Makes sense that any household that is, if it's divided against itself, itself, will fall what? Like a house of cards. And so it doesn't make sense that if Jesus is the son of Satan, that he would cast out demons to whom these demons do the bidding of what Satan desires them to do. So then in verse 26. And this is kind of a climax of this, a climax. He says in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. That word finished there is actually in the Greek, is, he's doomed. It's not that Satan goes away, but, but his, his empire, it's doomed. It's finished. And if Jesus is working with Satan to cast out demons, then Satan... can't have a kingdom, right? I mean, if he's working for Satan, but yet working against Satan, Satan's not going to have a kingdom. Verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Interesting parable here. The strong man here, of course, is pointing to Satan. Pointing to his kingdom, his house. And no one can enter the strong man's house and say, and plunder his property. Property, of course, in in the narrative of what's going on, this would be the, the, the demons themselves. No, once he enters the strong man's house, and plunder his property, he must do something first. He must bind the strong man, and then he will plunder. I mean, this is pointing to to the omnipotence of of Jesus, the power the fact and reality that he has power over the enemy. And that's what he's saying he's doing. When he casts out a demon, he's saying, I have complete control over Satan so much so that I can speak demons out of people's lives. The one who binds, of course, is Christ. Jesus comes along, and you know that he's working in opposition against Satan. He's demonstrating that as he casts out those those demons. He's pointing to the reality that he's stronger than Satan himself. He's pointing to the reality that he is Lord. That's so what Jesus does in in a matter of three verses is to demolish the scribes' conclusion. These scribes who, who know the law, these scribes who are supposedly the most righteous of the day. He knows their hard intention. And what he's doing is that he's showing us, unmasking their their unbelief, their hatred towards him. Remember, they don't like the fact that he's coming, he's displaying his deity, he's showing his, his divine power, that he's declaring the crowds were coming to them, which means that they're not going to them. Here's the clincher, verse 28. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit there's a lot there. The question is, he's pointing to what we would call the unpardonable sin. There is a sin against Christ, against the Holy Spirit, that brings eternal condemnation. Jesus calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So much so that, I mean, he look what he says there. He, he says that all your sins shall be forgiven, even those who utter blasphemy. But this one blasphemy— whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit— never has forgiveness. And so the question is: How do we, or how does one, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? You and I both know when we think about salvation and in light of, of the gospel, that when somebody repents and believes, they receive what. Not only grace, mercy, and forgiveness, but they also received the, the Holy Spirit. Very simple, and we'll dive into this, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, so hang with me. But very simple. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting the salvation of Jesus Christ. It makes sense, right? If there is one sin that will condemn the unbeliever, is to deny, reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. I think I need to give you more color in that, but that's the simplicity of it. It's remarkable. I mean, he calls them out. He shows their foolishness. He gives them their eternal consequence that your rejection is so hardened that because you do not believe in me, in believing in me, Jesus said in John 16, I will give you the what? The Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, who will come alongside of you you won't even receive the Holy Spirit. It's pretty harsh, but it's, it's right. It's right. All these groups of unbelief pressing against Christ, desiring to do something funny with Christ instead of simply repenting and believing. And so as we conclude... Giving you five minutes here to kind of wrap this up. But as we conclude just this study, knowing that we're going to launch in a couple weeks a fuller understanding of what this looks like. But I want to I give you some good news before you leave, okay? I want you to understand something. Even if you're here this morning and you find yourself in one of those, those groups of unbelief, maybe you're curious here this morning. You're trying to figure out what's going on. Somebody's invited me. I just don't understand what the church is all about, why Christ is preached. Let me say something. Out of the curious crowd, Jesus saves individuals. The reality is that out of your curiosity, there will be those who will come to faith in Christ. I don't know where you were in, in your unbelief before you received grace and mercy, before you received Christ. If it was curiosity, you are an example of, of that. You showed up because somebody showed you that they have great snacks after the end of the service. But as you sat, you heard, and as the truth was piercing your soul, you repented and believed. I even think uh, out of the group of unbelief, the critical family. In particular, you think about Jesus' brothers. There's a book by penned by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Oh, how about Jude? Individuals who, who no doubt had to be saved in order to, to write inspired in scripture, scripture. Even they came to a place where the Lord opened their heart and they received grace and mercy. Now you might be thinking there that these condemning, rock-throwing leaders, what about them? I mean, you and I both know that that Jesus has the right to, to send all of us to hell. Does He not? But even out of these hardened unbelievers... there came a man by the name of Nicodemus. He came in the night, John chapter 3, to figure out who this Christ was and was saved. How about this? How about Saul of Tarsus, who was Paul the apostle? I mean, you talk about the power and the grace and the mightiness of Christ, to change hearts. That's our Lord. And if you find yourself outside a belief, listen, Jesus wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to give you His grace and His mercy, knowing that you don't deserve it, nor have you earned it. but He wants to give it to you. And my exhortation to you is stop fighting your heart and trust in the Savior. Let me say it this way. I beg you to give your life to Christ. He is the way. He's the truth. And He's the life. And no one will be saved without receiving his grace and forgiveness, no matter what the liberals say. For you, you must take this unbelief, you must turn it to faith in Christ Jesus. And the sobering truth of that, if you reject him, the the reality of that is that damnation awaits you. appreciated my dad. He, he would often say, son, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And then Bear had to make a decision. Bear really wants the Twinkie, right? But if Bear takes the Twinkie, he's going to be punched. Bear learned only once that that wasn't wise. But in a more serious way, For you to reject and be outside of Christ is eternal damnation that condemns your soul. And then for those who have believed, I mean, this is what Jesus has done for your soul. He has changed your unbelief to belief. And he's doing a work within you. And he's conforming you to his likeness. And he's imputed his righteousness in your life. He's given you the Holy Spirit to do things for Christ in his kingdom. And get this, He desires you to continue to trust Him, to believe Him Him, and, and obey his, his Word. That you live in such a way with this understanding that He is sovereign, that He is Lord, that He's your Savior, and in light of that truth, you will follow Him all the days of your life. Amen? Father, again, we thank You for this morning, for bringing us the simplicity of the Word a simple narrative of Christ interacting with those around him. He understood exactly where they stood. Why? Because he's God. And those who gathered around him had had various selfish motives. For some, they just wanted something from Christ. They saw his and heard of his his miracles, his hand of comfort. And they wanted that. Yet they missed the mark. What they truly need is a heart of redemption. I think for the critical family and those who came alongside and how even in our day and age, the liberals have have just warmed up the the printing press to, to throw out all this Gobbledygook. I mean, it's just junk. Father, I pray that you would break their unbelief and show your supremacy, your deity, your omnipotence, all that you are. And may you break their hardened unbelief. The critical leaders the haters of God, the mockers of God. In all reality, Lord, I think that we can all identify with that group. Even when we didn't know you, we lived in such a way that we thought we were kings, that we were God. And through your humble means and through the power of your word and through the faithfulness of the testimony preached and shared, Our hearts have been saved. I pray for those who are on the outside of Christ and Christianity. May you draw them to a faith that believes. That they would repent and come to the Savior who ushers them into the kingdom in such a way that is so glorious and magnificent that he establishes the church and puts his sheep in it. So Father, have your, your way. Jesus, continue to draw, spirit confirm and condemn. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ who has given us life, who has risen us from the dead, who has given us hope of eternal life, who has given us the Holy Spirit. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com. Slash MV Bible or YouTube at youtube.com slash MV Bible.